So James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, uh, simple, non-complicated. Um, no, it, it, uh, this has been, I think some call it the most theologically difficult section of the book of James, which probably is true from that angle. It's a theologically um, challenging one in light of the rest of the New Testament. But my hope is that it's just, we, we just walk through this together, looking at the theme of faith and um, just draw out things that you have no doubt seen in your study, observe them together, and then step back and see how this fits with the rest of the New Testament. Uh, so there's not going to be anything unique or profound here. We're just going to look at it together, um, but eager to jump in. I love the book of James. Christina, Christina, you're here, right? There you are. Um, she and I uh, tried to memorize the book of James when we were dating, and we got, I think, over halfway. Not much is left in my head from that time. I was doing the New King James because that's what was my pocket Bible, and that's not the text that I used then or use now, so some of the language is gone, but that was a great book to spend time doing. I remember picturing now, I was at a golf course cleaning golf clubs and golf carts and messing around with the friends I worked with and book of James in my head, so that was a fun, fun season of life. Um, but this section, it's challenging, but it's also crucial. Uh, very important and very important for um, us today, um, especially as American evangelical Christians to understand and uh, think about together. So let's walk through it together. You guys should have an outline of our time together. So uh, first, there is a key concern that really frames the whole text. It's introduced in the first verse. It's all throughout. And I would put it this way. There is a kind of faith that does not save. So the key word here in this text is the word faith. It's central to this section. The noun faith occurs 11 times in these verses, the verb three times. Uh, the word works would also be the second um, word that's significant here. It shows up about a dozen times here. So the key words faith and the key concern is that there is a kind of faith that is, in James's words, useless and dead and non-saving. And so this is a concern because it's a personal concern for James. You can sense this. There are some people that may think that they have faith and may have a kind of faith that re don't realize it's not a saving faith. And James is concerned that people think they're saved and they're not. And so this is a serious pastoral burden on his heart in this letter. And so we see this concern in the opening verse. He asks this rhetorical question. And the function of rhetorical questions, uh, can anyone say, what's the function of a rhetorical question? When someone asks a rhetorical question, what's the function of that kind of communicative act? What's that? Emphasis. Yeah, emphasis. That's good. How else would you put it? Yeah, to prove their point. So to prove a point, to make a statement and with emphasis. It's kind of like, I think we ask questions and we can think that that means we, some, I mean, sometimes questions are mean we doubt something, like where do I go? How do I get to the mall, right? Not like we go to the mall much anymore, but how do I get to this place, right? It, we're uncertain, but a rhetorical question actually does the opposite. It actually makes a stronger statement than merely making a statement. So rather than saying um, there is a faith that doesn't save, he asks this question, right? He says, what good is it if someone says that he has faith but doesn't have works? What does he mean? It's no good at all, exclamation point, right? And when he says, can that faith save him? What does he want us to answer? No, that kind of faith certainly cannot save. 
exclamation point. So that's his key concern. He, he's asking a rhetorical question to make a strong statement. There is a kind of faith that is useless and doesn't save. And there's also a key contrast here that flows from this. So there's a, two kinds of faith. There's a non-saving faith, and then thankfully there is a saving faith. So verse 14 introduces this phrase of faith without works. And it's repeated throughout the section. Verse 17, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works. Verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. So this could make us think at first that he's contrasting two kinds of people, both of whom have faith, true faith. The difference between them, we would think, is simply one has works, the other one doesn't. So the contrast would be one person has faith with works, one person has faith without works. But the contrast ends up being between, uh, more specifically, two kinds of faith. So James says the person who has faith without works doesn't actually have a saving faith. The person who has faith with works actually does have a saving faith. So you see the difference is, is rooted in two different kinds of faith. And the presence of works or not tells you which kind of faith you have. So he describes it in verse 14 in several ways. And the most striking is that this faith that doesn't have works or that's apart from works is a non-saving faith. So that's the key, that's the key issue for him. He says that there's a kind of faith that can't save, and he has these contrasts. And I think this contrast is crucial to understanding his point and for us to understand today. So from there, James, you, you've seen as you study this, really structures his kind of flow of thought by giving examples. He gives a couple negative examples and a couple positive examples. He gives a couple examples that are negative, meaning they're examples that show what non-saving faith is. And then he gives a couple positive examples, Abraham and Rahab, to show what true saving faith looks like. So let's focus our time then on this theme through this text of saving faith. There's a lot of things we can consider in this text, but since you guys have already spent a bunch of time studying it, we'll just drill into this topic together. So here's a couple observations. Um, number one, a mere, what is non-saving faith? It's a mere profession of faith. So just trying to get this from what we see in verse 14 here. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? So this introduces the idea of a claim and evidence. This man says he has faith, but he doesn't have the evidence to prove that claim true. So all who have faith should say they have faith. There's nothing wrong with saying you have faith. That's a, a, a neutral statement here for someone to say they have faith. But the key issue that James is addressing is, is there evidence to back that claim up? And the only evidence that counts for James here for true faith, saving faith, is works. So this is about the uselessness of having a mere profession of faith if you don't have any love or works that flow from it. And then James gives this illustration in verses 15 to 16. So someone is poorly clothed and you say to them, that's that language again he's drawing on, you say to them to be cared for, but then you don't give them what they need. And that is useless. It does no good. So non-saving faith is a faith that makes no practical difference in your life or other people's lives. It's useless. It's good for nothing. It doesn't actually help anybody. So, a mere profession of faith. So, another observation. 
A non-saving faith is a dead faith. So verse 17, so faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, that kind of faith is dead. So this is also how James concludes the section in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So this shows that faith is either dead or alive. So this isn't about faith, um, one kind of faith that either works or doesn't work. It's about two kinds of faith. There's, there's a dead faith that doesn't work, and there's implication, a living faith, which does work and lead to works, and inevitably does. So like a living body breathes, if you look at a body and there's breath, you conclude that body must be alive. If you look at a body and there's no breathing, you conclude that is a dead body. Um, so James is saying there is a dead faith and a living faith. It's like a seed too. A, a dead seed you put in the ground, it does nothing. A living seed you put in the ground and it grows into a plant or a tree. So third, a faith that does not give evidence with works. It's another description of non-saving faith. So someone will say, verse 18, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. When you got to this, were, was it a bit puzzling to figure out what, who's talking and saying what? It is for me. Um, so uh, my best shot at it with help from, from others is this. Uh, James seems to be quoting an objector here, and the objector's point when he said the objector is saying, you have faith, I have works, is that faith and works can be separated. It's kind of like someone saying the, the you and I are kind of um, general here. So someone's just saying, hey, one person has faith, one person has works. I have faith, you have works. I have works, you have faith. I mean, to each their own. Everyone has their gifts. Um, you can separate them. You can kind of keep them compartmentalized. And then it seems like James then responds to that person who says, one person can have faith, another person have works. And James is saying, you can't separate it. And the key word is show. So first, he's calling that man to show him. James saying, show me your faith apart from works. Can you do that? Can you show me your faith? And the, James's point would be like, no, you can't. Um, if you, if you don't have works, I can't, I can't see your faith. There's no evidence of it. And James says, but I, I can show you my faith. I show you my faith by my works. So you can't separate these things as if one person has faith, one person has works, and that's all just fine to each their own. And then fourth, a faith, a non-saving faith, is a faith that is merely intellectual assent to Christian truth. So verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So this is the clearest point where James shows that there's different kinds of faith here. There's a kind of faith that we could say it's, it believes that merely. It's just a believing that. So they believe that God is one. Central doctrine of God from the Old Testament um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Demons believe that is true. And James is writing to Jewish Christians largely. So they have a background. So this is a central orthodox statement of truth. And James is saying, you believe in the one God. Good. Uh, you should. However, if that's all you have, if you just have a believing that, that's not enough. Evidence. Demons believe that. And how's it going for them? Right? 
Um, they, they, they mentally assent to this truth. They, they agree on the orthodox doctrine, but they aren't saved and they aren't doing good to anybody. So this kind of faith is an intellectual assent to the truth merely. It's believing that. So I think James looks out at, at people around him and he would look at people around today and say there's many people who believe that God exists. There's many people who believe that Jesus was a historical figure who did good things. There's many people who believe that Jesus died and rose again. They believe the facts of those things. Um, there's many people who believe that God is maybe going to forgive them. They, they have a mental assent to these truths. And James is saying that's not enough. This means that true faith is not just agreeing that God exists. It's not just seeing a doctrinal statement and having no theological issues with it. Um, it's not just reading the Bible and agreeing in your mind that all of it is true. And we know this because the demons believe all of that. They're the best theologians in the world. They have better theology probably than any other person. They've been around a long time, look in the Bible. Um, and James says demons believe these things intellectually, but they aren't saved. So true faith includes necessarily belief in the truth, but it's not sufficient. It involves more than that. So in summary, what is this non-saving faith that James is concerned about? It's, it's a faith that someone has where someone claims to be a Christian. They agree with Christian truth in their minds, but they doesn't do, it doesn't produce any good works. They have a dead faith. It's useless for serving others, and it's useless for saving themselves. So, those are observations about what non-saving faith is. So, more importantly now, what, what is then saving faith? If James says, this kind of faith cannot save, what's the faith that can? So, um, there, we can contrast these two things. So, we can take the statements that James makes about non-saving faith and turn them around to understand what true saving faith is. So, the structure of James's text is he focuses on non-saving faith, for the first several verses, and then he turns to give examples in Abraham and Rahab on true saving faith. So here's what I did in this chart. You can just see it's nothing too fancy. It's just I took those statements on non-saving faith in one side of the column and then flipped them around to do the best I could to say, well, what's the opposite? What, would, what does this imply about saving faith then? And then the bottom two uh, rows are building on this in the second half of the text where James actually speaks positively about what true saving faith is. So uh, left column is nothing new. It's what we just looked through. It's a mere profession of faith. But now look at the right column then. Saving faith then is faith that is not less, but it's more than a mere profession. Next row, uh, non-saving faith is a dead faith. Okay, so what would be the opposite? What's saving faith? Maybe don't read my note. Just call it out. If non-saving faith is a dead faith, what is saving faith? It's alive, yeah. Uh, it's not dead, but it's living. And um, even, even the way he put it in verse 17, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works as dead, means that faith, the saving faith must not be alone. It must have works with it. So it's a, a living faith. It's like a seed that produces a tree. Uh, Non-saving faith is faith without evidence of work. So it works, so then what's saving faith? probably too obvious to even say, right? Okay, that has evidence of works. Um, faith that, non-saving faith is faith that's merely intellectual assent to Christian truth, like the demons. So then what is saving faith? Well, it must be faith that is not less, but more than 
intellectual assent than truth. I mean, at a minimum, I'm just, this is a minimum of what we can say. We can say a lot more than this, um, but at a minimum, that's what we learn. So then the bottom two columns are what James adds to this in giving a positive vision of true saving faith. So a couple notes here. It seems like James' pri- James's primary illustration is Abraham. And he, and he shows us two things. So first in, in box one here, at least of the, the second to the last row, um, we see that faith, saving faith is faith that is active and brought to completion with good works. So what's the illustration James gives in Abraham's life of the, the evidence uh, of works in his life? Yeah, he's willing to sacrifice his son, um, Isaac, when God calls him to. And that's in Genesis chapter 22. And so at that point, Abraham had already believed in God. Um, Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed in God and God reckoned it to him or credited it to him or counted him as righteous. So Abraham believes God, counted as righteous, Genesis 15, 6. Years later, God asked him to obey and he did. And James's point is, don't, don't you see here that faith led to works there? It led to an act of obedience. So Abraham had believed. He's on terms of grace with God. And then later, when God asked him to obey, he demonstrated that faith. He demonstrated that he trust, trusted in God. And then James makes a few observations about the nature of true faith from this. He shows us a few ways that faith and works are organically connected. So verse 22 here, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So two observations. Saving faith is active with works, active along with works, and it's completed by works. So you can see there's an order there. Faith comes first, and then it's completed by works, and it's active with works. And then the last row there, we see that faith trusts God and is the means of being declared righteous and being called God's friend. In other words, it, saving faith trusts God and receives salvation and righteousness. It comes before works. So verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So James is saying that Abraham believed God, or he, he obeyed God in Genesis 22, and that actually was the fulfillment of what was said of him in Genesis 15. He believed God, and he was counted righteous and God's friend. So Abraham, Abraham's faith is what, what, what caused him to enter into a saving relationship with God and being counted righteous before God. And then later, Uh, That faith, that scripture that talks about his faith is brought to a fulfillment or a fullness um, when he um, actually does obey God. So here's how we understand then the relationship between faith and works according uh, to this text. Uh, A couple notes. One, faith and works are distinct. You can't put them together. Some would try to put them together and say that, that they're, in, they're really the same thing, interchangeable. Faith is, is, a, is a work itself, but they're really distinct. Faith and works are not interchangeable. They don't refer to the same thing. Faith is trusting God. Works are obedient actions. So they're distinct. But second, they're inseparable. Faith and works are distinct, but you can't separate them. James's whole, 
This is James' point, right? You cannot separate true saving faith from obedience. They're distinct, but they're inseparable. Faith always leads to it. And so then third, so they're distinct, inseparable. Third, they're organically related. Faith always comes first and then works, and it's faith itself that produces those works and leads to good works. So, it's helpful, to be clear, it's helpful to be clear here on this, that we are not saved by our good works. Our good works count for nothing in the merits of heaven um, or before God. Uh, however, no one can be saved without producing good works. So, let's go to the New Testament to confirm this contrast between saving faith and non-saving faith. A couple observations. We'll just walk through some other texts together. Um, and uh, you can consider this further as, as we go. So first, um, you know, Paul and James are often viewed as enemies, not friends. So I think it's helpful to just even start by saying Paul would love what James says. The Apostle Paul agrees saving faith always proceeds and leads to a transformed life. So Romans 1.5 is um, an example. So Paul says, through whom, Christ through whom, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So that phrase, obedience of faith, it shows up here, it shows up at the end of that letter as well. And I think it is best translated the obedience from faith. So two options, right? The obedience of faith could be the obedience which is faith. In other words, Paul's saying, my goal is to bring about the obedience, which is faith, namely faith. It's the obedience of faith. Faith is obedience. Um, I think it's most likely that Paul has in mind, uh, not saying faith is obedience, but that um, this is the obedience that springs from faith. That's his goal. He wants to see a globe filled with people who have real faith that results in good works. He wants to see a globe filled with the obedience from faith, the obedience that springs from faith. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. This um, Jewish work that some were promoting at the time as grounds before God for acceptance. He said, that doesn't count for anything. What counts then? Only faith working through love. Isn't that interesting? Not just faith, but he, he wants to be clear. It's a certain kind of faith. It's a faith working through love. Notice he didn't say the only thing that counts for God's works. No, no, no. Faith is the priority. But it's, it's a certain kind. It's a faith that works through love. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, I think probably the most important and helpful um, text in the New Testament for holding this together. For by grace you have been saved. So I, I have mine circle the by grace. By grace you have been saved. Through faith, I have through circled in faith. So by grace, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So by grace, through faith, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, works then are not, I mean, very explicitly, they are not the grounds of our acceptance before God. We are saved by grace, through faith. Grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So, where do, where do works come in? Uh, they're the result of that. When we're saved by grace, through faith, we're saved for good works. We're saved unto good works. They're the result of our salvation. 
the evidence of salvation. So John Calvin put it this way, faith alone justifies. So brings about the declaration of righteous in God's sight, acceptance before God. And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Uh, so faith alone justifies, but what kind of faith? Well, it's a faith that's never alone. It's a faith that always has works. Because then James would say, if it's a faith that's alone, it's not a faith that justifies. Does that make sense? So second, good works, what's their role then? If saving faith always leads to this transformation, what's the role of good works? Well, they confirm the reality of saving faith. The absence of works, on the other hand, calls into question the presence of saving faith. I mean, this is James's point. If you do not have good works, you must not have saving faith. And I think he learned that from his older brother. Uh, Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 7, just before this statement, um, these, these verses I included here, Jesus talked about identifying prophets, and he said, you'll know them by their fruits, right? If, if, if it's got bad fruit, you know that it's a false prophet. Good fruit, it's a good prophet, true prophet. And then he leads into this section. He says, and, and you hear the, the resonance with James's statement about claiming to have faith. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and this is, this is why this is so serious, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So here's people who are saying to Jesus, Lord, Lord. They're identifying him as Lord. They were doing works in his name. And Jesus says, there are many people who will be like this. Many people. And then verse 23, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So their lack of a transformed lie, life, they're workers of lawlessness, it proved that they didn't actually know Jesus, which says something else about the nature of true faith and what, what accompanies it. It's knowing Jesus. Jesus says, I never knew you. Not I knew you once and now you disobeyed, so I'm mad at you and you, you're running. He said, no, I never knew you. You thought you knew me. You're calling me Lord, Lord, like we're friends. I never knew you. Depart from me. And, and it's their deeds that, are, that, are, that he's bringing to attention here. Titus 1.16, similar point. Um, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Uh, I can jump down to 2 Corinthians 13.5. So this is kind of an implication of this truth. Paul says at one point, he doesn't bring this out a lot. So he's not always going around calling people to examine themselves, but there is a time for it. And the Corinthians certainly came to this point. And he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So good works are, they necessary, necessarily flow from faith. Um, they confirm the reality of saving faith. And then a third point here, good works are viewed as a necessary condition, but not the basis of entering eternal life in the end. So there's a difference between the basis for something and the condition, right? 
um, or the reason why something happens in a condition. This is a necessary condition, means this needs to be true of you to enter eternal life, but this doesn't mean it's the ground of your salvation. So a few examples, Matthew 25, I don't have it written here. This is the text of the final judgment, separation of the sheep and goats. Um, I encourage you to read it later if you're not familiar with that text. I'm sure many of you are. So Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And when he says why he's separating these people, some will depart for destruction, some for eternal life. So it's a separation for eternal destiny. He doesn't say because the sheep believed, the goats didn't believe, though that's true. Instead, uh, the, the reason which, in which he gives for why some are separated as sheep or goats is because the sheep cared for the least of these. Um, the impoverished, needy ones. I think impoverished, needy uh, Christians in that context, but that's regardless for this point. Um, And then those who are goats who go to eternal destruction, Jesus says, because you didn't care for the least of these. You didn't give water and food and clothing. Very similar to James's point, isn't it? You say, be be warm and well-fed, and you don't do anything for him. James is really concerned for this kind of loving fruitfulness in people's lives. So Jesus is not saying there, the ground of your salvation is your good works, as if the cross where he was just about to head meant nothing. Um, no, but this, this is the evidence that they know him. Romans 6.22, Apostle Paul says this, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So that's an an interesting progression, right? So these are Christians who believe, and then what happens after they believe? They're they're set free from sin. So there's there's a freedom from the enslaving power of sin, and they now become slaves of God, and then that leads to fruit that they get that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So belief leads to freedom and sanctification, which leads to eternal life. So this is the chain, uh, the progress that Paul envisions the Christian life being. Not you believe in Jesus and then it'd be great if you did some good works now and then. It's irrelevant to your salvation in the end. No, he says you believe, that leads to the fruit of sanctification, which has its end, eternal life. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, a fallen nature, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, similar prog- uh, progression. Trust, belief in Jesus, leads to a life that sows to the Spirit. And the result of that is reaping eternal life. So this agricultural imagery of sowing to the Spirit, which is obedience, and then reaping eternal life. And then Hebrews 12, 14, for those of you who are here last year with the Hebrew study, the author of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So in the, in the author of Hebrews' mind, he's saying, Strive for holiness. This is personal obedience. Um, strive for that because without that, no one will see the Lord. It's, a, it's necessary to see the Lord. Um, so you believe and then you strive for holiness, which results in seeing the Lord. And if you don't have that holiness, you won't see the Lord, which I think goes back to James's point. True faith 
leads to holiness, which results in seeing the Lord. So, quick clarification. Um, Works, holiness, sanctification, all this language Paul's talking about, this is not in any way the basis of our salvation or the ground of our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 are so important for that, right? You're saved by grace, through faith, for good works. And the cross of Jesus is central to that because that's how we can be accepted on terms of grace. Jesus took all our sin upon himself, and when we trust him, we're in on terms of grace alone. And it's, we receive that through faith alone, just letting go of works as a ground of salvation and just clinging to him by faith. That's how we're saved. But then we're saved for a life of good works that necessarily come and give evidence of true saving faith. And, and another clarification, this isn't like weighing the scales or anything. Um, this isn't perfect obedience. Um, the thief on the cross is a great example of this, right? How many good works is he going to have? How much holiness is he going to have? Not much, but he did have a little, uh, right? He, he trusted Jesus in those last hours, and then he stopped mocking him. He rebuked the other guy for mocking him. Um, so he's going to get there, and he's got a whole lifetime of just wretchedness, and uh, he, he's in on terms of grace through faith. But he, God will also um, pull out a couple notes to say, anyone want, anyone want evidence? Well, here's a couple. He told that guy to quit making fun of me. Um, there, there, there's, there's a couple hours of evidence of a transformed life there uh, that Jesus is not going to say that's the ground of his salvation. Not a chance. The cross alone. Um, but it's evidence that he trusted Jesus. So I think that's, that's how this uh, is held together. And then um, just a, a quick note. I won't read these. The, the truths that make sense of this. Um, the theology that the New Testament authors have, this is kind of the theological underpinnings, um, are this. It's the new covenant promise of a new heart. So in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other places, there was a promise that one day God would fully forgive his people and give them a new heart. And I will just read a note here. In Ezekiel 36, verse 27, it's included here, he says this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Perfectly in the new creation to come, but truly now, um, he will cause us to be careful. I mean, the, the, the new covenant answers the problem of the old covenant, which was a people who didn't actually love God or trust him truly. They granted his existence, um, they professed to believe, and they hated him by and large, most of them, and they perpetually disregarded him and were worshiping idols and disobeying him. And so God said, I'm going to fix that problem. I'm going to bring a new covenant um, where the people will trust me and I will cause them by the Spirit's power to walk in my ways. So we're just about out of time. So just a couple notes. How does, I didn't get to the, how does James 2.24 reconcile with Romans 3.28? So you can... Um, <clears throat> Just a brief word of that and a recommendation. Um, if when you're reading James 2.24, you see that a person's justified by works, not by faith alone, and that bothered you, because you're like Romans 3.28, Paul says, we hold that one's justified by faith apart from works of the law. Um, I'd encourage you to uh, give yourself to thinking that through. And here's a couple ways forward. 
Um, one, James and Paul are talking about different contexts. I think Paul is addressing legalists, those who are saying uh, good works are the ground for our salvation, right? We need to do good works for God to welcome us and save us and, and justify us. And Paul is saying, no, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Um, but Paul also does affirm that, that if you have saving faith, that'll lead to good works. James, on the other hand, is likely talking to people who have swung the pendulum the other way. Um, probably also Jewish people who have a tendency now to say, oh, it's grace? Well, good works used to be everything to me. Now they're nothing, and they don't matter. And James is saying, oh, yes, they do. Um, and if you don't have them, you don't actually get this grace and faith thing, truly. Um, so that they have, they're, they're not facing each other as enemies, James and Paul. They're kind of standing back to back, fighting the same battle, but against different enemies and different fronts. And so James and Paul uh, really agree uh, at, at root here that saving faith is a transforming faith. And um, I'd encourage you if you want to look further. Um, John Piper had a sermon on this, and I think the title is something like, does, I think I wrote it down, I could give it to you. Um, does James contradict Paul? So Google, does James, con James contradict Paul? It's a great, uh, helpful explanation of resolving this tension between the two. And the answer is no, they don't, they don't contradict. Um, so just a couple brief words in closing. Um, there's two perhaps main responses to this that people can have. First, uh, some people should listen to James and they should lose their assurance of their salvation. And then they should truly trust Christ for true assurance. So polls, Barna polls show that um, our nation has the same issue that James's context had. There are many people who profess to be Christians. They believe that God exists. They believe that Jesus is Savior. And it doesn't mean they're actually saved. So American Christians need what James is giving here, a category that has two different kinds of faith. There's one kind that's mere intellectual assent to truth, and then there's a living, saving faith. So some may realize, after considering James, that they don't have this saving faith. They realize there is no evidence in my life that I have this living faith in me. Um, and so then this is a moment when they or you can wake up and to that. And then your response then is not to say, okay, God cares about works, I better start working. No, no, no. The, the works don't show the grounds. The works alert you to a defect in the faith. So then you step back and say, I need true faith in Jesus. I need to rest in him. I need to know what it means to really trust him. So here's a note from Sam Albury in the, his book, James, for you. Here's the genuinely frightening truth that should give you and me pause. It is possible to claim and to believe you possess genuine saving faith when in fact you do not. It is possible, in other words, to believe that you have things sorted with God, that you will not face his judgment, that there's hope for you beyond the grave, and yet remain under the judgment of God. It is possible in sort in short, unknowingly to possess counterfeit faith. So that's one possible uh, response to work through. The other possible response, uh, number two here, others should not unnecessarily doubt their salvation, but trust Christ, continue to trust Christ, and thank him for his work in their lives. So many people can read James, read these 
text from Paul, and they have a tender conscience. Maybe this is you. You have a tender conscience, and you also have a humble, low view of your own good works and evidence of love. So you can look at what's in your life and say, I don't, I don't see any transformation. I don't see good works. I must, I must not be saved. Um, and that would be a wrong response because we need a higher view of God's work in our life. We need to see that He has transformed us, and we need to recognize that and rest assured. We're trusting in Christ. There is evidence, um, and we shouldn't lack assurance at this point. So James is not saying that we need to have a certain amount of good works. He's not saying count your works. Um, you know, an apple tree, some apple trees have hundreds of apples, right? You look at it like that's an apple tree. Um, another tree has no apples. It's got some rotten oranges. Well, is that an apple tree? Not a chance. But there's some trees that got like one or two apples kind of buried, and they aren't the best-looking apples, but they're real. That's an apple tree. So that's some of us. We may not have a whole lot. It may be discouraging kind of compared to others, but they're real apples. So don't lose heart. Don't all of a sudden think you're not an apple tree. Be grateful for what's there and uh, get on with clothing and feeding the poor, as James would say. And then last note, we should all be encouraged for a couple reasons, because, because of that, for one, he's not kind of, this isn't kind of work counting, but also the works James has in view are, we could call, radically ordinary. They're just radically ordinary expressions of faith. These aren't, these aren't flying to other countries and serving a million people with food that they need. I mean, that can be part of it, um, but this is, you know, uh, when you're, when your child or your husband comes home and you're tired and you want to say something rude and you hold your tongue and you say hi. That's real faith, right? It's a Christian right there. Um, it's saying, uh, man, I can't believe my son did that again and I'm just ready to lose it. And you don't lose it as much. And then you apologize for even the amount that you did lose it, you know, getting upset or frustrated. That's good works. And then changing the diaper. I mean, it's radically ordinary. Um, so take heart. All right. Um, well, I'm done. You guys aren't. So thanks for spending time with me uh, with this text. Grateful for you all. Uh, encourage that you'll go continue to think and talk about this some more. And then just real quick, if you want further thoughts or reading, uh, I have a big book and a small book for you. If you're kind of more oriented to think through this question of like, wait, is faith works? How does this work theologically? Um, John Piper wrote a book called Future Grace. Um, mine's kind of falling apart, marked up like crazy. Um, this has been just a, such a helpful book for me in my life. Um, it's a big book, but he did write it. He says there for everyone to read. You know, he's got like 30 chapters, so piecemeal, um, bite size. So I commend it to you. Uh, with this caveat, um, at least I am not a big fan of his first two chapters. He, he kind of downplays gratitude as a motivation for the Christian life. I think that's a really strong motivation for the Christian life. But I don't disagree with what he says. He just kind of gives this warning at first. Um, so only caveat, awesome book, grateful for it. And if you're thinking, okay, I, I get that theologically. I don't have kind of those problems. I just, I just want to grow. Um, well, you're in the right place because this is all part of that. But if you want another book, here's a book, How to Grow. Um, new book by Daryl Dash. So applying the gospel to all your life. How to grow. S super practical, helpful in just taking next steps as a Christian, growing as a disciple. All right. Thank you all. Can I pray? Thanks.
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, these truths. Uh, We're thankful that you're the one who gives the faith. We're thankful that you're the one who, by your Spirit, gives us a new heart and causes us to walk in your ways. And so, all glory goes to you. We get zero, and we're grateful for that. And we're satisfied in praising you for that. And so, we pray that conversations would be a blessing to us and pleasing to you as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.